Can you hear me? Well, thank you. Let me thank you for uh, allowing me to do this. I, in some sense, I felt thrown under the bus by my wife. <laughs> and it was okay. I mean, she, at first she told me I had two weeks to go through Hebrews. And I was like, okay. Then she said, oh, it's just one week. And I thought, now it's even more difficult. I counted last night uh, because I keep all my sermons in a binder by books that I've preached through. I did 50 sermons in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> so to do, <laughs> to do this in 45-ish minutes is, is, a, is a challenge. But... Uh, but we'll do it. We'll, get to, we'll fly over and look at it. And th- this book is so significant in tying a wedding together. I know you guys have been, been tracing the bloodline, and you start to think, you know, the, the Bible is a blood-soaked book, and, and specifically the book of Hebrews is a blood-soaked book. And you start to think, why, does, why is the issue of blood and bloodline and, and, and going through so important? And we see that in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it, it's extremely important. We learn by looking at scripture that um, life is in the blood and it has everything to do with with sin and and restoration and and God's wrath being satisfied this is what the author author of Hebrews starts to get at as we look at him tying together everything we see in the Old Testament by way of type and shadow that is pointing to fulfillment in Christ so it's a very significant book very very important you get a good biblical theology by looking at the book of Hebrews and reading through it. Um, I want to pray before we jump in. I came across a quote last night from Burke Parsons. He's a pastor of St. Andrew's Chapel in Florida, connected with Ligonier Ministries and R.C. Sproul. But he said this, and I thought this was very fitting that we remember this. He said that theology is not simply the pursuit of knowledge about God. It is the pursuit of God himself. The more we know about God, the more we know God, and the more we are able to worship and glorify God as God. And so I'm always reminding myself that anytime I do something like this, anytime I've prepared for a, a lesson or a sermon, that I am not standing over the text of Scripture, looking down at it, picking it apart. I am underneath it. Uh, we're reminded in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It needs to do its work in us. So I don't come to you in any stretch as some sort of expert in, on any part of the Bible. Uh, regardless of how many years I did ministry, or so, it doesn't matter. This book picks me apart. I never stand over it. I always lay beneath it and, and hopefully let it do its work. So let's pray with that in mind and then uh, rip through this book uh, <laughs> to try to see what we pull from it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours in even, even you allowing us to, to gather together in this room to consider humbly what your word would say to us this morning, but what you would say to us more specifically through your word. And Lord, as we look at these issues that are challenging and encouraging, may we remember that you deeply love us and you are at work persevering us in the faith. So Father, we ask that you would remove all outside thoughts and distractions, all affections that are twisted in this moment and focus us specifically on you and what you would say to us in this moment guide us now in the name of jesus christ our great high priest amen all right the book of hebrews um if i were going to lay out and and i didn't do a specific outline what i want to do is just simply go chapter by chapter and i'm i'm not reading tons of portions of scripture to you I'll, I'll reference what chapter I'm in, and there will be times when I, when I look at a, a read a very specific uh, section of verses. 
but you can sort of follow along as I tell you what chapter we're in, and you can kind of skim and see what I'm talking about there. But the theme of the book of Hebrews, the reason it was written, is this issue, persevering in the faith. The audience that, that the author, who is unknown to us, uh, we know the ultimate author, but the, the, the human hand that penned this letter is unknown to us. I have some, uh, some theories, and some people think it was Paul. I don't think it was. But the reason he wrote this was because this group of believers was being persecuted in some sense. As we get into the further in the book, you'll see that. There, there was pressure on them as they sought to live the life of faith. And it, the pressure was so great that it quite simply in their minds was, would be easier to return to an observance of the Old Covenant, an observance of the law. And the author of Hebrews spells out why this is extremely dangerous. Because what we find as we look through the balance of Scripture and what history reveals to us that the Reformers held to doggedly, that what they recovered, is that the issue of persevering in the faith is both a promise and it's also a proof. And we need both sides of that coin as we live a life of faith because we need the promise when we are struggling with doubt and discouragement. We need the charge of proof to prove the reality of your confession of faith when we are entangled in sin. And what we'll find is we go through the book of Hebrews, several devices that God uses to persevere us in the faith, to bring about that promise that we will make it to the end. So that's, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Then I would also say this, the framework of the book of Hebrews is covenantal. It has everything to do with the issue of how God relates to his people, and that is by covenant. So we find ourselves considering the old covenant and the new covenant. And it's interesting that we talk about this issue of blood and bloodline that in ancient Near Eastern culture, you corrupt a barit, you cut a covenant. And we see evidence of this very graphically, which is important in, in Genesis 15, which we'll talk about in just a second. So old covenant, when, when the author uses that phrase, he is referring to the covenant at Sinai. He makes it very clear that when the Lord brought the people out of the land of Egypt and brought them to the mountain, he entered into a covenant with them. And then new covenant, when he uses that phrase, um, he's talking about a covenant, and th this bl blows my mind when I think about it. He's talking about a covenant that is actually older than the old covenant. It is in continuity with the covenant given to Abraham. So in Genesis 12, this covenant is introduced to Abraham. In Genesis 15, where it's actually cut, it's ratified with Abraham, and then we see it revisited again in 2 Samuel 7 when we enter into what is called the Davidic covenant. It's still a continuation of what we find God promising Abraham in Genesis 12. So the new covenant is an old, old covenant, okay? It's not a new idea, but there's some significance there that we'll talk about because the old covenant was to establish the people in the land and keep them there by obedience to the law and to maintain fellowship with Yahweh through obedience to the sacrificial system. And we'll see the significance of this in Hebrews 8. But this is a suzerainty covenant. It's a king entering into an agreement with his subjects by which they promise to do certain things and he will do what he has promised to do. That's very important. And in the new covenant, it, it's a fulfillment of what the old covenant shadow represented. It's the reality to establish the people of God in his presence in the new heaven and new earth by a royal grant, not a suzerainty covenant, but a royal grant. That's where a king says, I will do this, I promise. 
and it is based on the faithfulness, the complete and perfect obedience of another. And we know who that other is. The one who made this royal grant covenant possible for us is Jesus Christ himself. And that issue is seen in Genesis 15. When God entered into this covenant with Abraham, when Abraham was worried about, you know, he says, God, you, and I'm paraphrasing here, you say I'm going to have an heir that will continue this line, yet I don't even have a son from my own body. Will it be Eliezer of Damascus? Can he do this? God said, no, it will be from you. And he puts Abraham in a divine coma. Now, if somebody enters into a covenant, they normally we think they need to be a part of what's going on here. But God puts Abraham out. After he had had Abraham take animals and slice them this way in two and lay them apart. That's the cutting of the covenant. A bloody mess. I, I sort of titled what I was giving you guys today the bloody mess of grace because that's what this is. So what's interesting is normally in this covenant, the two per- participants in the agreement would lock arms and pass through these pieces of the animal. And what they were saying is, may it be unto me as has been done to these animals if I fail to uphold my end of this bargain. But what's interesting in Genesis 15, as you look at it, Abraham's out. God himself passes through the pieces. He goes through alone, putting every bit of the responsibility of the fulfillment of this covenant on himself. Based on the faithful obedience of the one who would come. That we find all the way back in Genesis 3.15 the one who will crush the head of the serpent. So this is the framework of this entire book. Now, the fabric, we could say the whoop and the wharf of this book is the superiority and beauty of Jesus Christ. He says the reason all these things are true about the covenant and what God is going to do is because of the beauty of the faithful one. This book challenges us to savor Christ in all that he is for us every day in all that we do that's i mean and he starts the book off in that way so if you if you look in chapters one and two immediately we find that jesus is god's full and final word to us in those first three verses god has spoken in many portions in many ways to our fathers to the prophets and the writers he says but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son you want to know what god has to say about something you look at scripture and behold jesus christ so we immediately after that, I mean, he sets that stage to let them know what he's talking about. And he, the first thing he says that Jesus is superior to, that they were tempted to go back and, and sort of sit under, is angels. And we think, wow. These people had a sense that they needed some mediator between God and man. What they failed to recognize is that angels were ministers, not in the true sense, mediators. We need someone to mediate because there's a problem, which we'll see again in a moment. So the issue becomes minister or servant, maybe is a better way to put it, that that paints the picture I'm trying to get towards you, or or mediator, a go-between that represents both sides. And then we get this. Here's what's interesting about, here's here's one of those first tools that God uses to persevere us. We get in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, our first warning And let me tell you my perspective on these warnings in the book of Hebrews because they are intense. When you get into chapter 6, it's very scary. These are very real warnings. They're not hypothetical. Hypotheticals don't do anything, do they? Real warnings cause you to go. Because these warnings are the means by which God perseveres us in the faith. To fail to heed these warnings demonstrates 
that your faith is faulty. It reveals something about the reality of your confession. So these warnings are very real, and they should land on us in that way. But the first one we get is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he talks about the issue of drifting. And the danger with drifting is that it's slow and imperceptible. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? An implied question with the answer being, you don't. If you neglect this salvation, you don't escape. So that's our very first warning. And then he moves into chapter 3. He talked about angels there, and he goes on. To which of the angels did he ever say this or this or this, pointing out that Jesus is superior to angels. Then he goes on. He ratchets it up a notch in chapter 3. We find that Jesus is superior to Moses, the, the great prophet. And he says this in verses 5 through 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. There it is again to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. See, there's also a little bit of a warning there. If we hold fast. So the issue here becomes servant versus son. We need the son. It's law. I was going to say law versus grace, but that's sort of because the giving of the law was grace in itself. So, there is a distinction, though. When you look in John 1, 17, you have that distinction that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came and embodied, tabernacled in Jesus Christ. It's when you begin to depend on the law as a, as a way to be okay in God's sight that you run into trouble, because it was never intended to do that. It was intended to show you that you can't, because it's, because it's perfect, and his righteousness is perfect. So, we get our second warning in chapter 3. If you look in verses 7 and following, you get, he, he quotes from uh, Psalm 95, which is recalling events from Exodus 16 and Numbers 14, which says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. And he goes on to say, I swore in my wrath they would not enter my rest, which is a staggering statement. But it's a warning to us to say, don't, don't harden your heart. So chapter 4. Am I going at a pretty good, good clip? We've got 13 chapters to get through. Some of them will be, we'll spend a little more time than others. Chapter 4, Jesus is superior to Joshua, the great conqueror, the one who led them into the promised land. And the issue starts to become here, the issue of rest, the Sabbath. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. That's the only place I disagree with in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'm not a Sabbatarian in the sense that my Sabbath rest is in Jesus. It's in him. I don't have to demonstrate by refraining from doing certain things. Now, if you want to do that, I mean, if it's honorable in your heart to do that, absolutely. There are certain things I would refrain from, but I don't, but I don't put stock in that. My rest is in Christ because it's an issue of Sabbath rest versus wilderness wandering. Because in verses 8 and 9 of, of chapter 4 there, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So... Wilderness wandering or resting in Christ. So I think about the, the wandering that we tend to do, the wilderness wandering of legalism and performance, because that's what Sabbath rest ultimately is supposed to be, our resting from our works in the sight of God and finding ourselves at rest in Christ to be presented before him. It's no longer about what I do. It's about what has been done for me in the faithful servant, the Son. 
the one who is the conqueror that's greater than Joshua. So it's there, though, in, in chapter 4, we first get introduced to this idea, which we'll start to unravel, of Jesus as our great high priest. Like in verses 14 through 16 there, you find it. Jesus is our great high priest. Um, and obviously that designation is <laughs> stating that he's, he's greater than any high priest. Um, so in chapters 5 and, five and 7, we're not going to skip 6, we'll go back, but 5 and 7, we find that Jesus is superior to Aaron or the Levitical priesthood as a whole. Let me ask you guys this question to consider. What does the existence of the office of priesthood indicate or assume? The very fact that there's someone that we would call, hey, that's the priest. What does that assume? Yeah, it assumes there's a big problem. The only reason a priesthood is necessary is because there's a breach between God and man. The priest is the the one who intervenes. He's the go-between. So it assumes a very real problem. So, and in talking about Jesus as our great high priest, the author of Hebrews goes back uh, to Genesis 15 and then in Psalm 10 as well. But Genesis 15, we're introduced to this mysterious priest king called Melchizedek. And he is a foreshadowing of Christ because he's, he's significant because He's the king of peace because he was king of Salem, which is shalom, peace. His name means he's the king of righteousness, Melech Zedek. So we also find out that he is called in Genesis uh, 15, a high priest of God. So why is Melchizedek important when we think about Jesus as our great high priest? There being a breach between God and man and Jesus is our great high priest, that's good news. Why is Melchizedek important? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, that's an important phrase, but he says, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So he's asking the same question we are. Rather than one after the order of Aaron. Isn't Aaron? The tribe of Levi comes from there, and that's where the priesthood comes from. He says, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now listen to this. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that is Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What, what do we find said about people from the tribe of Judah? Kings come from Judah, right? So we have no, so there's a perceived problem here. How can Jesus be priest if he came from the kingly tribe? That's why we have Melchizedek. That's why we have this wedding of these two offices perfectly in the one who foreshadowed Jesus for us. That he is our great high priest and he is our king. It is very important. That's why he says, you will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he quotes that psalm um, several times in chapter 7 and even I believe in chapter 8 um, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek yes chapter 7 in verse 21 the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek psalm 110 so that's very important for us so 
The perceived problem is taken care of in this mysterious figure that we don't know much about other than Genesis 15. That's foreshadowing our king and priest. Now, chapter 6. We didn't, weren't skipping it. It's critical. This is the one that has that warning um, that will make you tremble. In chapter 6, um, you know, we had a, a great... We've been going through in, in the college class, going through the book of Hebrews, and we got to this chapter and had great, great discussion. I'm, I'm going to tell you guys, I've never seen in any church I've been in that age of, of young people, college age, be as thoughtful and, and serious about their faith as I have here. You should see these kids writing, taking notes. I mean, just constantly, and, and they ask very deep questions, not surfacey stuff. They don't give the Sunday school answer, Jesus. When it's, when it's right, they give it, but they're thinking deeply about these things. They're, they are being honest and struggling with faith sometimes. And, and they ask questions. So it, it's been great. We had a great discussion on this very chapter. But you, you find this, um, and you read through chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and you go, wow, what in the world is happening here? What you have to remember as you read through this warning is that in, in regard to this warning and growing in Christ, um, the author uses first-person plural pronouns, we and us, including his audience with him. But in regard to falling away and perishing, he uses the third-person plural pronoun, those, them, and they. And then, you know, why does he do that? Because in verse 9 of chapter 6, we find this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Now, he's not being hypothetical. He has confidence that their confession of faith is real. But he's saying, you know, in, in the case of those who do fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So, perseverance in the faith is a promise from God. It's also a proof of the reality of where we stand in relation to Christ by persevering in the faith. And even the word perseverance implies struggle, doesn't it? You persevere through things that are difficult. And faith sometimes is very difficult. But we encourage ourselves with the promise and we motivi motivate ourselves with the call to prove. So, chapter 8. So we did 5 and 7, went back to 6 to consider that for a second. And you look at chapter 8. Here's the logic of grace. And essentially what he argues here is better priest, better covenant. Better mediator, better arrangement to relate to God. In verses 5 through 7, he's, the author says this. Speaking of the earthly priest, he says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, that issue, types and shadows versus reality and substance, is huge in this book. It's huge when you consider Old Testament into New Testament. Because the Old Testament is preparing us for something. It's showing us and pointing us to what the New Testament will reveal clearly. So, he says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And wouldn't that have been amazing to, to see? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So it's very clear here that 
The covenant entered into at Sinai was a shadow and a copy of the new covenant reality. It was never meant to be the final word. Because remember, it was about a physical people staying in a physical place by physical obedience to an outward standard. And, and that's its weakness. So to illustrate this, he does something amazing. He quotes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the clearest laying out of the new covenant that we find in the Bible. So listen to this. Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, this is what he says. He says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and here's the quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt bring them into Sinai so not like the Sinaitic covenant for they did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with those or make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now this proves what we said earlier about the Sinaitic Covenant being about staying in the land, about being a physical people in a physical place. Because the Old Covenant, here's the Old Covenant problem. What did he mention there? They did not continue. And the Old Covenant result was this. I showed no concern for them, which is a staggering statement from the mouth of God. What does that mean? Exile. This is what happened when they were disobedient. Out of the land. So to show no concern is to exile the people. So there was an old covenant problem and an old covenant result. And here's the new covenant solution. Notice everything he mentioned about this. First of all, it's internal. Internal versus external because he says, I will write my laws on their minds and their hearts. It's an inward change, which is exactly what we need. All the outward change we do, we can fake for a while, but the inward change is what we desperately, desperately need and what Christ has made possible through his obedience. So it becomes a mind and a heart issue. And then the second thing was, there is real communion with God. He says, they shall be my people, I will be their God. Real, lasting communion with God. And then the third thing is this. There's intimate knowledge. Did you know that he said, notice that he said there, uh, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Which I think, this, this is some of the discussion I have with the, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters that I love. Um, we talk about the issue of covenant. And this, this is why in the Presbyterian church they will, I'm talking PCA Presbyterian, uh, the reform branch of Presbyterian, they will baptize infants because they consider them to be in the covenant. They tie that to, to circumcision. And they say, well, they're in the covenant until they demonstrate otherwise. Well, I would argue that we're in the covenant. All know the Lord. So they will all know me. All who are in this covenant shall know me. So that, that's, very, that's an aside, but that's very important. So because here's the issue. If, if this covenant, the new covenant solution, is intimate knowledge, where he says they shall know me, the reason this is significant is because what, this is how Jesus defines salvation in John 17, 3. Listen to what he says. And this is eternal life. This is in his high priestly prayer. He says, this is eternal life. Here it is. That they know you, the only true God. 
in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So salvation has everything to do with intimate knowledge. It starts with God's intimate knowledge of us before we're born. But it's culminated when he brings us into intimate knowledge of himself. And then there's full, perfect, lasting atonement. The last thing he said there, I will remember their sins no more. And what that indicates is actual removal of guilt. Because this leads right into chapter 9 where the central issue becomes a discussion of conscience. The cleansing or clearing of conscience. And, you know, and we spoke about this in, in the college class. And you could see it on their faces that people that live with guilt or fear of guilt, it cripples that's why this is important because he's saying here that what we need is actual removal of our guilt before God to have a clear conscience. And this is seen in the duties that he describes of the earthly priests, which also demonstrates their shortfall. Look in verses 6 and 7 in chapter 9. He says this, These preparations having thus been made, the, uh, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties, that is day after day, but into the second only the high priest goes in that but once a year. That's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Why do he say that? Unintentional. See, verse 9, he says, um, the outer, outer court, which is symbolic for the present age, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's what we need, yet all of this didn't do that. And the key is in that phrase, the unintentional sins of the people. He's, when, the, when the high priest went in to do his duties, it was for the unintentional sins of the people. The problem is, we are guilty of high-handed, willful rebellion against God. And this may be shocking, but there is no provision in the Old Testament for high-handed sin against God. And if you think I'm wrong, listen to this. Numbers 15, 30 through 31. Now, in, in verses 22 through 29, Moses talks about the provisions that are made. Again, and he mentions unintentional sins of the people. Then he says this, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That is, uh, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That strong language for no hope of atonement here's why because full atonement it, for high-handed rebellion against god which i'll tell you i am guilty of this morning that requires perfect sacrifice a sacrifice that is so utterly perfect that it completely removes and satisfies the wrath of god only jesus does that that's why he says this couldn't cleanse the conscience but he goes on to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. In verse 11, he says, but when Christ appeared, there's the good news. The high-handed, willful rebellion against God is finally taken care of. This is why when we read in Romans 3 that God passed over the sins previously committed, because that high-handed rebellion was not dealt with. In Christ, it's dealt with. So there is now no guilt, and that's supposed to make us shout, because living guilt-free is a best way you can live you know that when you deal with guilt it cripples everything you do it's, it's a pit and a fear 
happen. Now it's possible, but, and here's where the, the, the bloody mess of grace is what makes that possible. Watch this in chapter 9. Verses 18 through 22, he says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now put your, put your feet in the sandals of these Hebrews at the tabernacle and Moses slinging watered-down blood all over you, all over the book, all over the tent, all over the altar, all over the table. Everything, everything beautiful is covered with blood. This is a question for me. Each of us have things that we consider beautiful in our lives. It could be the fact that I was allowed to come and speak to you guys today. Any service I give, any class you teach, any, any, anything you may do, serving the people of God in the church of God, please make sure that everything beautiful is covered in blood. If it's not, it's just merely beautiful and it, its beauty will fade. But if it's covered in blood, it's holy and useful and acceptable. Everything beautiful must be covered in blood. And so that begs the question as we get into chapter 10, what were we made for? All this discussion about the old covenant obedience and new covenant obedience, firmly grounded on the obedience of the one, what were we made for? So in chapter 10, we have exposed for us that the law was a shadow. In verse 1, the law was only a shadow or contained a shadow of good things to come. That in the exercise of the Levitical priesthood, uh, it was not true cleansing and restoration, but only a reminder of sin day after day, month after month, year after year. That's why when you read, um, again, I told college kids, when you read, some people find it difficult to read through the book of Leviticus. It's supposed to be. It's, it's, <laughs> it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be, oh my gosh more regulations of sacrifice and more how, how, to, how to slaughter, how to, where to sprinkle, what to use, what to, how many days, what time. It's supposed to be, isn't there a better way? Yes, there is. That's the point. And so this reminder is constant, but the author does something stunning in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. He quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and he quotes it from the Septuagint. If you go back and look in your Bible at 6 through 8, it's, it's slightly different. But he quotes from the Bible that these people would have had and been familiar with. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So, he reminds them that sacrifices were offered according to the law. They were told to do that. And he puts Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus. That's no small thing. He puts what he just quoted. He says, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes the psalm. So if, if you heard what that psalm said, it should sort of make us take pause. He says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. Huh? Thought you said, do this. 
And he says, uh, in sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Hmm? I thought the aroma was pleasing. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I've come to do your will. So what Jesus came to do for us and what God expects and desires of us is not fearful sacrifice, but loving, joyful obedience. So let me put it this way. God designed us. God designed you for loving obedience, not fearful sacrifice. Loving obedience, not fearful sacrifice. So when that psalm declares all of this arrangement was never the end result, never the ultimate goal. That's not what God takes greatest pleasure in is our obedience to him. That's why you find Paul saying, you know, the sacrifices that are pleasing to God are, he lists out things we do, things we say, in joyful response to him. And then we get, because we, we have confidence now, at the end of verse 10 you find you have confidence to enter the true holy place by the blood of Jesus to hold fast our confession without wavering and to stir up one another to good work. So I have to say this, if, if remember the whole thing is about persevering. That's why he's laying all this out for us. Perseverance is a community project. You cannot persevere in the faith by yourself. You won't. You need, we need each other to persevere in the faith. I found that even to be true in my, in my marriage, that God balances. There have been times with some of the things we've, we've experienced where one of us will drop down here and begin to question God's goodness and faithfulness toward us, and the other one has to say, hey, snap out of it. Remember these things, and then it'll tip you. So, we, so if it works that way even in a marriage, it, it definitely must work that way within the body of Christ. That's, that's where it's supposed to work. We need each other. <laughs> You've probably heard pastors in the past say, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Every Christian needs a tonto. I would say, no, they need a whole community of tontos. <laughs> you need other believers in your life. Because persevering in the faith, persevering in the faith brings, or must be in community. And we get the fourth warning in chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. He says, if we... If we go on sinning willfully, what remains for us is the fear of the fury of fire which consumes the adversaries. Fear, fury, and consumption by fire. That's how serious God takes this issue. Again, it's a very real warning for us. If you go on sinning willfully, that's to make us go, am I in Christ? And then chapter 11. Chapter 11 is probably... I hate saying things like this. I won't say it. It's just a very well-known chapter in Hebrews. Everybody's familiar with it, likely. Um, it's called the Faith Hall of Fame is what people refer to it as. So what this proves to us, if we're talking about covenant and talking about persevering, then the thing that encourages another tool that God would use other than warnings is for us to remember his faithfulness to himself and his promises. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. We have all these people listed, but the point is not necessarily... Their faithfulness, but God's faithfulness toward them. I mean, because he's the one that persevered them, right? So he is faithful to his covenant promise. And even if, here's, the, here's the key for uh, Hebrews 11. Even if we don't see that in our lifetime. So God is up to something that is much bigger than our lifetime. Much bigger than our life can hold. Because we're not the center stage. 
of what he's doing. He is, not us. And so perseverance is necessary because we, by default in difficulty, begin to doubt God's presence. So he defines faith for us in verses 1 through 3. When do I need to be wrapping up? I'm almost done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So he mentions... Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and and then in verse 13, he says, These, referring to them, all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Oops. Seems like an oops to us. Then he mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Exodus generation, the conquest generation, Rahab. On and on he goes until he gets to verses 39 through 40 and says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Oops. No. So what's happening there? God was doing something much bigger than their individual lifetimes. Much bigger. And they weren't center stage. God's redemptive activity is. God's redemptive activity in Christ from Genesis to Revelation. That is what is center here. That's what we get the privilege of reading about when we, when we dive into the Bible. So chapter 12, feeding off of that those lists of people who God was faithful to, meant to encourage us to be faithful and to persevere. In chapter 12, he talks about running the race with perseverance. And we are told that the saints who, who lived, he said, what's he say? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we misunderstand that sometimes. Sometimes we think that, oh, as we're running the race, they're cheering us on. They're witnessing, witnessing us run the race. No. They're witness, witnessing to us of God's faithfulness. Not watching us and cheering us on. I mean, to the degree that I can tell, (laughs) what they're witnessing is to us of God's faithfulness to us, to them and to us. We're to look at them, not them look at us. As we run, we behold them and run the race with perseverance. So, and here's where we see another tool God uses to persevere us, and it is what? His fatherly discipline, which is really not pleasurable, as the author says, no one likes it when it's happening, but it yields the fruit of righteousness. It perseveres us. So um, in, in verse 14, he says um, that that discipline yields something, that if we don't have it, we will not see the Lord. So it's sort of a another little warning when he says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is why perseverance and sanctification is so important. We can't presume. He says you should see a, a growth in holiness if you would see Christ. So, and in a stunning comparison there in, verse tw- in chapter 12, um, he returns to this issue of the two covenants. And um, he speaks of the, the scene at Mount Sinai and the reality of what Mount Sinai represented. Watch this. So he's sort of wrapping up everything we've been talking about, starting in verse 18. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is Mount Sinai. Notice he said, you not come to a mountain that can be touched. It's a physical manifestation of something much more important. He says, that's not the mountain you've come to in Christ. You've come to the mountain that that mountain 
was screaming at you was coming. And that is, starting in verse 22, that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's, he's saying that's the point of the covenant this one gets you here and he ends that that chapter with a sobering declaration which prompts us to persevere he says for our God is a consuming fire I love how he continually reminds us don't play around with God his love is great he is faithful don't pray, play around with who he is don't presume and then chapter 13 one of the most practical exhortations in all of scripture about how we live the life of faith uh, is found there um, and its capstone is in verse 6 because he talks about uh, let, you know, let brotherly love continue show hospitality to strangers some have entertained angels unaware which is amazing remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them you once were mistreated let marriage be held in. so he's talking about all these very practical things and then he says this um, number verse 5 keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me now in the battle of perseverance that's all you need to know the Lord is my helper I will not fear nobody can do anything to me nobody even if it's with some of these um, people that some of these Hebrews knew even though they were sawn in half that doesn't mean anything. Even if their property was plundered, which, by the way, he says they joyfully endured that. I got stuff I would not joyfully endure people taking from me. Guitars is, and books are, are at the top of that list. But what that tells me is, well, then I've got uh, a misproportionate attachment to some things, don't I? Because he says when you're attached, when your focus is on Christ, you joyfully endure the loss of all things. Even Paul said this, I counted all garbage, and he got a little stronger than that for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. So, unless we think that, that persevering in the faith should be easy, the author levels us with this truth. Look in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 13. He says, for the, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So again, he's talking about the type and shadow, and he says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate that is near the garbage dump to sanctify the people through his own blood therefore let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come be willing basically be willing to be counted rubbish yourself because you're crazy enough to follow jesus because that's becoming more and more the perspective of who we are in the world do not live do not live in and give your life for types and shadows. Embrace the long road, the long, hard road that requires perseverance to experience the glorious reality that Jesus has afforded for us. And, as, and, and this is what I'll close with. As I you know, have read through the book of Hebrews and considered it, and, and trust me, this was 40, 50 minutes. I mean, I can't get 50 sermons in 40, 50 minutes. There's so much in this book so much 
So, uh, yeah, I probably did not say a lot of things you thought I should have said, and I apologize for that. Didn't hit things that maybe were more significant than what I did say, and I apologize for that. But here's what I would boil it down practically for us. And this has been my prayer. As I have seen people who I once thought were just strong Christians reject the faith. I'm talking there's some scary, gut-wrenching examples I've seen of people who I thought were just as solid as they come and turn and embrace a godless, blasphemous lifestyle. I would say this. This has been my prayer for me, and I hope it will be your prayer for yourself as well. It's better to live a short life in faithfulness than to live a long life in apostasy. My prayer several times has been, God, if I ever start down the road to defame your name, take me out. I'd rather die in faithfulness two minutes from now than to say, well, you've got 30 more years, but at the end of that time, you're going to reject and bring shame. No, please no. Take me out. I mean, as my grandfather used to say, I've already have enough that will keep me busy praising him for eternity. And that's just the things he's done for me, but the biggest of those things is that he died for me. That's enough. I don't need anything else. It's better to live a short life, even tragic in faithfulness, than a long life of ease and comfort in apostasy. And I'll leave you with this blessing from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, ladies.